Hello, everyone. Today, you have Jake and Sethila. I think that is the pronunciation of his name. Uh, <laughs> uh, today, we're going to be talking to you about a famous little movie from 1992 called Glengarry Glen Ross, based off a of, was it a Mimet play? It was. Uh huh. So yeah. I'm gonna let I'm gonna throw it to Seth. He's a little more knowledgeable about this than me. Uh, so Seth, take it away. Yeah, so David Mamet wrote this uh, play back in 1985, and truth be known, I believe it won the Pulitzer Prize, which is a very esteemed uh, award for uh, a piece of writing to win. So just beyond, uh, I think beyond seeing this as a play or a movie, if you if you just seek out the actual uh, original play of Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, it's an amazing piece of written work. And just the levels of dialogue that Mamet uses it's a masterclass. It's a it's a play I looked at in uh, in uh, screenwriting classes in college and stuff. It's one of these. It's, I mean, he's a master of dialogue and everything he does. But Glenn Gary Glenn Ross is kind of the peak of his powers, I guess I would say. Um, he's known for a lot of stuff. He had a whole playwriting career before his movie career. He wrote the screenplay for The Verdict, which is a great Sydney of the Bay movie with uh, Paul Newman in it in the early eighties. Really overlooked movie, probably one of the best movies of the eighties. Um, and then the, he also wrote the screenplay for The Untouchables. House of Games is a really good movie with Joe Montana. I love The Untouchables. <laughs> That's a fun movie. <laughs> it's like it's a fun screenplay too if you really watch it closely. And then he kind of has a run in the '90s, starting with Henry Glenn Ross. Writes a movie called Hoffa, which before The Irishman was really the big movie about Jimmy Hoffa, starring Jack Nicholson. Um, then he has movies like The Edge and Wag the Dog and Ronan. Uh, which were all like kind of successful in different ways. Wag the Dog got a lot of Oscar nominations. The Edge was kind of like a low-key uh, blockbuster summer movie that Baldwin was in. It's almost like, and this is probably inaccurate, so correct me, it almost had like a B-movie plot. It was like a very, yeah. it was very like, B, B, that might be unfair. It had like a very... It felt elevated by Baldwin and Hopkins kind of like, they kind of both realized they were in a movie that wasn't that great, but it was like, sort of like still acting the shit out of it. The story is two rivals get stuck and are hunted by like a man-eating bear. Like, that's And there's it's so much more than that, but that's the hook. Like that's the main premise. And then, uh, oh yeah, the other Amanda movie I was going to mention was Redbone, which came out in the early 2000s, which I think is a really good movie, really well written. All kinds of people in that movie. Tim <laughs> Allen, Joe Montana, what? Joe Whitehill, and Gia Ford, I believe is the main character. What's it called? Redbone. Oh, I'm interesting. That's a good, that's a, that's a good recommendation uh, for anyone into this kind of stuff. But uh, so to bring it back to Glengarry Glen Ross, this was sort of like I think Mamet had basically been known as like this playwriter who was starting to transition into screenplays, and um, it wasn't like I don't think he was really a name around Hollywood until this movie, and it was like after this movie. It was just like everybody, like, you don't really know screenplay writers' names that often, but after this movie, everybody knew who David Mann was. And it was just like, the amount of actors they stuffed into this cast is fucking unreal. And like, I, you know, it was a different time, and today this cast would be more multicultural, there might be a few female characters, it would just be a different thing today. But it's like, the fact, the fact that they put this group of guys together in the early 90s, I, I know that it's not the pinnacle of representation, but it is just like a loaded group of guys that can all act really well. And each one of them is like, you can tell they all want to perform well and they all want to one-up each other. 
and it's just really fun to watch all of them work together. Some, I mean, Kevin Spacey has been canceled by our culture, and so some of these guys, you know, their history might not be great, but it's like, at this point in time and in this movie, they're all on their game, and they're all doing great work. Uh, my belief is, I was actually thinking about that too, it's hard not to see him uh, in this film and not think about that, but my takeaway is like, if you really want to paint with that brush, honestly, like most movies, like there's even, there's more, a lot of like secrets have been unearthed in a lot of these institutions, but Hollywood has, yeah, I was just going to say Hollywood has more secrets than we realize. So like, it's difficult to paint with that brush for people who don't like the movie or don't like his performance because of that. I totally understand. I can kind of separate it out at least. Like I I wouldn't support any future thing he's in, but I'm not going to hate, like I love seven. I'm not going to hate that now just because he's in it. Cause I, because yeah, yeah, then, then you're hurting other actors in that film who m- probably had nothing to do with it. Like, and the director. Yeah. yeah. Made a great movie. So I agree. It's a, you know. <laughs> well, I would say we, you, talk, you mentioned the cast and the act, like the cast and the writing. And I mean, that's like, that's the strength of the movie. And like, I think like that's probably the two best things to start on just because the cast, like I might know it's like, it's in the first 90 seconds. Like once the screen, the credits roll, it's like, Spacey, Pacino, Lemon, Harris, and Price, and Alan uh, Arkin are all introduced, yeah. like, within immediately. And you're already, like, wow, like, sticker shock. And, like, you, you get a few more. Uh, and, then you get, like, and then you get the Alec Baldwin scene. Oh. And you're like, oh, my God, Alec Baldwin's awesome in this movie. And it's, like, that might, that's probably the most memorable, most quoted scene. <laughs> Maybe movie history. I don't even know. They should rename uh, on We Watchables. They should rename the Dion Waiters Award to the to the Alec Baldwin yeah, Award because right. or whatever his character's name in this. I'm blanking on it now. I actually have it. I can pull it up, but he crushes he it. Blake. It's a great. It's a great scene. It's a great character. That's also um, that's a scene that's not in the play. That was specifically added for the movie. And uh, I know Mamet thought that it was like. He didn't think the play straight up as a movie was going to come across the right way or something. And he was like, he wanted something to get an extra grab at the movie audience. And that was like, he wrote this monologue and added that scene for the movie. My brother, who apparently saw this, uh, you know, play in a production somewhere, always tells me that the play was better than this movie. I never got it. Uh, also, apparently, Alan Arkin was in the original production of the play, I think, which is why he's in the movie now. Although I think Alan Arkin played like the Al Pacino character in the eighties, I think is how it worked. But anyways, there are people I know of that really hold that play to high esteem and see the movie as like Hollywood bullshit or whatever. But for uh, the rest of us who haven't had that exposure, I think it's a great movie. I totally get that. I mean, I, I don't. I haven't seen the play, but I imagine it's not much different when reading a book. It's just another adaptation, and something's going to be lost. Sometimes things are gained. Sometimes, but usually things are lost. So I totally get it. Um, and I also, this movie totally, we talk about movies that feel like plays and this is one of them. Like you could do yeah. this whole movie with like a couple of sets, like a phone booth an office and a restaurant. Have, yeah. The settings they use are barely settings. It's like a Chinese restaurant and then it's the office of the sales place. It's like, it's, it's, uh, there's a couple scenes where like Ed Harris is talking now in a car and you're like, oh wow, they moved this conversation into a car. You know? But it's like, there's really not a lot going on with the settings. Or anything. Well, so, um, one of the things that. I wanted to ask, it's like talking about um, just the cast in general. Actually, I was going to say if there's anyone that you didn't love, but I think a better way to do it is kind of do you want to just like walk through each character and like what we thought? Like, yeah. oh, yeah. I'm sorry. The, the one thing I want to say about the cast is I knew a bunch of them took uh, like big pay cuts to be in this. Like, I know Pacino did. 
I think almost all of them took a pay cut of some sort. And Baldwin initially, he the role from what I read was written for him, and then he was going to drop it. And it was either a producer or it was the or uh, Mehmet. Someone got out to him and was basically was able to like talk to him one on one. He's like, it's one of the best scripts I've read, and they were able to convince him to come, even though it was like a one day role uh, or like a, a one shot role. Um, I think it, I'm assuming it had something to do with the money, but whatever. They ended up getting all these people to sign on. Um, and it really shows like, well, we can go into individual performances, but like the strength of this cast alone. And you're yeah, right. The, the mark is the lack of diversity, but also like at this time, like there wasn't a, a whole lot of diversity going on. So it's not completely unreasonable. 92 maybe, but like this was a probably a play written in the eighties or seventies. Like it's not unreasonable that there wouldn't, would only be white people in this, but there should it's be a woman. Kind of, but that's it's like, I think I think if you add that character in, I'm not saying this is necessarily what happened, but the movie would probably take on this came out in ninety two. That was around the LA the LA that was around the LA that was around the LA riots or uh like the Ronnie King like race to ha- have a that could introduce a whole new conversation that they might not want in this movie. Yeah. Not saying that's okay, but that's something I thought of. That's true, uh, but yeah, I, I think the the cast kind of snowballed for them. It had that effect where it's like, oh, you got Pacino and you got Lemon, and then it's like, oh, and then Arkin's doing it because he was in the original play, and then you know Ed Harris and Spacey both have uh, you know theater backgrounds, and I think it was just one of those things when guys heard who was in the cast, they kind of wanted to be a part of it, and they just kind of got that snowball effect. And they all knew who Mamet wasn't. That like all these big time actors, they knew who Mamet wasn't. They knew that you know the play had won the Pulitzer and stuff. So it was like, I think the, all that kind of stuff snowballed. And then you know for Baldwin, I think once he realized what the scene was, I think that had a lot to do because it's the it's the kind of thing where if someone told you, hey, you got a one day thing, it's a cameo in this movie with all these other big actors, but like you know you you don't have a big part, but you have a little scene in it. I think once he realized what the scene was and that he got to kind of be the biggest big shot of the movie, I think that appealed to his ego a lot more. I definitely could see that. And I mean, to me, he's the he's the one in his prime. Like, Roma, we'll go on all the individual characters, but he is the asshole. Like, he's honestly, the, he's probably the difference between the eight, 90s version of that and when uh, Mamet initially wrote it. Like, he represented, like, the new generation that were, like, successful, wealthy, and at the same time, like, there was no respect for the elder generation. Like you see Roma have for Levine, like he's just there and he's like, it's all results driven Astros. Um, and it's like very much like there it's, it's all, it's all style, no substance, no soul. It's one of the great like total shifts in a movie. I think where it's like in the beginning of this movie, you're kind of like, okay, I see this guy and that guy. They're like working a sales place. They're trying to get together for something. Like you're kind of trying to put together the characters but when Baldwin comes in, it's like the movie begins. And this guy, it's... Lemon's crying by the end. <laughs> and it's just like from the, you know, won't let Jack Lemon get coffee. Coffee is for closers. And it's like, you guys are going to have to do this or you're going to lose your job. And that's the situation. And everyone needs to stop, like, acting like bitches here. And you need to suck it up and start selling. And it's just like, that. not... Not only is he emasculating them, he's threatening them with their jobs. It's just he, he, he dehumanizes all these guys in a matter of five minutes. I think that's a bigger a part of and like one of the things I think this movie touches on, which is a huge, it's still an ongoing thing. And it's the commoditization of actual humans. It's like you're looking at yes. them and not as like 
it's removing the uh, human from the HR point. It's like you're just looking at them as resources. And and, and I think it, it hits the nail on the head. It's like, I think it's the perfect tonal shift. It's like, he is also, it's almost as if he's his own different movie and it makes sense. He's like, he drops in, drops this bomb and it just sets off like the action for the rest of the movie. And also, like, I love that there's a component to his character where it's like, he might just be a guy that puts on a fancy suit and a nice watch and walks into a place and gives this speech all over the country. You know, for all you know, he's not a big time. For all you know, he drove there in a Honda in a shitty suit and they just give him this costume and a nice watch to wear for five minutes and he does his little spiel. Like, you don't really have any fucking background on this guy at all. Well, it's so funny when you say that because I was thinking about that in hindsight. Throughout the movie, you see pretty much all of them with the exception of Arkin where, like, like go through different things. Like, you see... The, the Jack Lemon Levine character, um, the Ed Harris Moss character, and the Al Pacino Roma character all have their like big swinging dick moments where they're like flinging around, and then you also see them at other moments where they're either angry or vulnerable or sad, right. and uh, it's just like you you're sure I'm sure Alec Baldwin for anyone who's been in any organization usually the people that have that type of bark either have no bite at all or they're the saddest like most miserable person someone who's like happy super happy with their life normally doesn't have that type of demeanor or outlook or like that either they are successful and they're filling a hole or they're trying to pretend they're successful and by acting this way and it's like you can take the characters being completely legitimate maybe he is down there maybe he is a close friend from Mitch and Murray and he is down there and he is this rich guy and it's like this is the last chance for these people but it's like what you realize is it doesn't matter because it's your job's on the line tonight. And that's the situation. It doesn't matter who told you. It doesn't matter how they told you. It's like the, the point gets across in that scene. And it's a, <laughs> it's one of those things where it's like, it could be a two second scene where like Kevin Spacey just says like, Hey, you got to make these numbers or your job's gone tonight. And then they'll deal with it. Or you have Alec Baldwin walk in and give this huge gigantic performance. And it's like, it's, it's taking a plot point and just going to the most extreme with it. It's, a, it's an interesting scene in a whole lot of ways from the writing and the acting and everything. In it. So you kind of touch on this. I think the movie is very character based. I feel like we just maybe pivot to the next character. And I think I kind of want to bring up Spacey and I was kind of alluding this to before. He's the only one for me that doesn't really, I think hit all the highs and I, I'm upon like hindsight and looking at the character, I kind of realized he's meant to serve just like Pacino is like a symbol for one aspect of the modern work culture. So is he, he's the middle manager. He's the bureaucrat. Yes. Pacino has this whole speech at one point. It's like, it's not a world for men. It's a world for office managers and bureaucrats. And it's really, it's, you, he what, him a company man. yeah. And, or a fairy at one point. And it's like the, uh, a fucking child. You shouldn't open your mouth unless you know the shot. There's all these lines. That's just like, it's so, it's so incredible. And the idea is being that Spacey is just there for nepotism. He's there for the wrong reasons. He's yeah, he was somebody's. It's like they they kind of allude to it, but it's like he's somebody's cousin or he knew somebody's uncle, and so he got his job through a connection. He's never done real sales, but he's in charge of this office branch and all these guys who are doing real sales. And it's like he he's also like half their age. He's younger than all of the people he's managing. Yeah, and it's like you can tell. You know, there's definitely a barrier between him and the guys doing sales. Not that all the guys doing sales like each other either, but it's still there's a barrier between that and the company kind of thing. And he's the one who has to give out the leads, and he's the one who has to decide who gets what and stuff. And it's like they they all see him as the face. You know, he's the only face of the company in that office. And it's like 
you're right. He's a total middleman. I mean, I don't want to say that. It's like, it's hard for me to be like, well, I dislike him more than the other characters. His decisions, for the most part, I want to say, are pretty moral. He does indulge the Jack London character, Shelley, um, in, in terms of like a little scheme about uh, giving him new, new leads and, and taking a percentage of his sale. He kind of thinks about it. But by the end of the movie, he doesn't really do it. And he pretty much, you know, turns in the people... You know, he turns in lemon. Proof spoilers, by the way, rips off, the, rips off the joint, and uh, it's like by the end of the movie, I'm kind of like he. If I was in his position, if my uncle gave me a job in a sales office and all this shit went down, I would probably kind of do what he did. And so it's like at the end of the day, he doesn't take Shelley's schemes or anything, and he just kind of like goes. But but at the same time, I see Pacino's whole like view of him, where it's like. You were supposed to be helping me make my sales. You were supposed to be like assisting me, not getting in the way of me. And it's like everything Spacey does is just fucking up stuff for the guys trying to make real sales. Uh, yeah, like in terms of morality, I think he is probably he's moral. He does all the right things. It just for me, and maybe it's more a testament to the way he's written. He has the least I amount of personality. He yeah, he's definitely written in a way that it's like he's supposed to be like the wall that these guys are hitting against, and you're not really supposed to like him. I think you're supposed to more fall, you know, follow the salesman and kind of pick up on their situations. No, even well, that's it. Either way, it just it doesn't work for me. It's the only time like he's being blown off the screen by every everyone he's sharing it with. Like he's not winning any scene. By the end, I feel like he's getting blown away. Um, and it's like I maybe I think you might be right. Maybe that's exactly what he's supposed to be. Because that is the role of the middle managers to take shit from above and below and basically try to keep everything in equilibrium. And and if that's what it is, it is. But like to me, he was the one character that just didn't really click and, and that he's the only one that, that I didn't love. Now, other with that being said, let's move on to some of the other characters. Should we talk about Pacino's Roma? Ricky Roma, yeah. Very, very uh, interesting character. Uh, also, again, interesting writing. So the way you the the introduction you have with Roma is basically him at the Chinese restaurant having a drink with a mark. He kind of finds a guy he thinks he can make a sale on, and if you listen really closely, Roma never brings up this sale. This guy he does about two monologues worth of talking about all kinds of shit from like you know some people think this way, I think that way. You want to drink water? I'll drink alcohol. You feel sick, I'll do the... Energy. It's the whole speech. It's like he follows the law of like going against public opinion. Yes. And I love that. It's I, he Both of his speeches are great, but I made that put it on my notes. It's so, it's so great. But it's like... What, well, I remember the first time watching this, just being like sort of entranced by Pacino talking about like the laws of you know this and that and like all these deep thoughts. But now that I've sort of seen it and understand it, uh, it's, it's very clear that he's performing this sort of trance-like speech on this guy. Not that he's hypnotizing him, but it's like he's sort of talking to this guy just to talk to him and just kind of to make the connection. He's not talking about the sale. He's not pushing anything. He's just talking in a way that would make him seem very interesting to his mark. And it's like he's just as much of a con man sort of as the other guys, but he's, he's you can tell his game is way, way at a different level. And so it's like when... Uh, so... In comparison, like after the Baldwin scene, the Lemon character gets immediately on the phone and tells some old woman that she's won a prize and he just needs her to sign on the dotted line to like claim her prize. And that's the way that he's going to try to fool somebody into signing her property. But it's like the way Pacino is working is this whole other level. It's like, 
I'm not even going to talk about myself for 30 minutes. I'm just going to make this connection with you and make you like believe in anything I say. It's a really interesting way to like make a sale. Well, I love that um, you mentioned the con man aspect. And I actually, I didn't pick up on that directly. Like I realized they were just being like, in my mind, like bad salespeople or shitty salespeople are good, depending on how you look at it. But then it was um, with with the characters, they all kept talking about, oh, I'm only here for a day. Like I'm in from Florida, in from Arizona. And they're all, and you're right. And the more it goes on, the more elaborate the lie, you realize these lies are. And they're just creating these like contriving these situations to generate pressure for the set, for the, the mark. And then you see Pacino and he's a totally different league. He's not wasting time on all these calls. He's out in the wild and he's like hunting and stalking it on his own. Like as opposed to waiting for someone to like tell him where to go and who to be hunting for. It's really, and it's like, it, that's the kind of style that like you can tell it's a whole other development too. It's like, it, you know, uh, it doesn't seem like the Ed Harris character could just go out to a bar and sweet talk a guy. He's way too fiery. You know, it's like there's no way he could do what Pacino is doing. Way so too, like, way too salty. And Aaron now is just is too timid. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And so it's like in a way, these salesmen. It's like there's also this whole component of like maybe these guys aren't good salesmen and they should lose their jobs. Like maybe this is like the capitalistic way that things should be. And then there's this other component of like. Maybe the, the, it's like the pressure they're put under is so fucking outrageous. And it's like, then they have all these discussions where it's like, you put a man under this kind of pressure, you, you got to do something. Something's got to change. And that's that, like, yeah, we can get into the dynamic between Alan Arkin and, and Harris character. Or do you want to stay on Roma for a little bit? Let's, the, let's finish on Roma because, yeah, we can dive right into them. But I, you're kind of hitting it on the head. One of the things I wanted to talk about was just the idea of pressure. And also, they all talk about streaks and it's very much like, I think the takeaway is it's, it's in sales. It's like your past is great, but it doesn't matter. It's your present. And so it's like, there's a big question, especially with lemons character or the Levine character. It's is, has he lost it or is he, is he on a bad streak? And they all talk about streaks. And, um, and I, I think the question is, and you kind of hit it and, and maybe we actually should, this is the perfect actually lead into the Aaron Al and Moss or Ed Harris and Arkin characters. Yep. Because like, if you put that type of pressure on people, like the chances of it being positive are, are pretty low. Like I, th- I think what you saw was more like accurate. Like if you put that type of pressure on, a, on, in my personal experience and opinion, it's not going to be necessarily positive and it could have unintended consequences. And you see in here, at least in this one, yes, it's a story, but like it drives three of the four people to consider doing illegal things and hurting the company and two of them actually acting on it. And, and actually three, cause Arkin doesn't say anything and we'll get into that shortly. Yeah. And it's like, so what you did was you just basically put four of these five people in this office, you made them all consider an illegal measure. And I, I might be going too, too far down the track here, but then the question there is also, Maybe some of these guys should lose their jobs if that's immediately where your mind goes. Nick, you haven't. I have to let you in on the deeper level. Now that you're kind of putting it all together, think of it from the company's point of view, right? You got this. You got this sales group. Maybe they're not hitting all their numbers. You're not in love with all those employees, right? You put that pressure on them intentionally, knowing someone's going to rip off the joint because you're insured. Remember what Alan Arkin kept asking? Yeah. Do you think they were insured? Do you think they were insured? I think the company intentionally made the Alec Baldwin move, put that pressure on them, knowing it would force somebody like Moss or Lemon or whatever, 
rip off the joint. They recoup all the insurance money. They're off on their own. I, I think that's a reading of, of the situation. Okay, that's a reading which, like, yeah, I was kind of flirting with. I did not put that all together, though. Um, I remember the insured thing, and I remember the idea. I, it occurred to me there that not fully formed, but that they might have hit it off. So, yeah. So that, I, I like that. That's awesome. The, yeah, to finish the thought, I guess, it's like the idea is you put so much pressure on them, you force them to try to rip off the place. Then when it ha- when all that kind of the dust settles, you fire the people that didn't make their sales or that attempted any criminal activity. You move on with your salesmen that, uh, that are making sales, like Roma, and then you recoup all your insurance money. And so it's like not only did you get rid of your employees you wanted to get rid of, but like you kind of made some money on top of it too. Wait, I just realized – you're right. They got rid of their three lowest performers. Right. They're keeping their main guy. And now they can probably fire Kevin Spacey if they want to, because he was completely oblivious. Wow. How, yeah. By the way, I told me, I just had a complete deja vu. Have we talked about this? I feel like I, like I, I just had complete deja vu. <laughs> um, but I think it's a movie that's kind of, or it's also, yeah, it's a story that's kind of confusing uh, at first glance, because like, it's a two act, and the, the the gap between the second act and the first act has just leaves a lot of questions. And you're not what happens is you know all of them are flirting with sort of criminal activity and different thoughts and plans, but you don't know who actually engages in what. And then, but when you show up in the second act the next day at the office, it's clear somebody's ripped them off, and the the police are there. They're talking to people. Roma has a sale that he's still trying to finish up. It's a it's a whole situation. The Roma, oh, that that's incredible. Like the whole Roma scene, though. I guess the la- we can move on to other characters, and we'll probably bring it back to Roma at some point. But his and you touched on it before. He's trying to close the sale. He realizes he has to close again because the paperwork was stolen in this robbery. He's in the midst of closing, and um, his. Well, it's like this guy comes back because he talked. He like he did close them at the Chinese restaurant. Yeah, yeah, no, wait, yeah, Link. He closed the the client Link, and then as uh, Spacey's character um basically totally fucks up doesn't pick up on the things that pacino's trying to lay down lies and scares him off and then pacino just absolutely tears into him and belittles him and to me it's like that's his hero moment but his other best moments are the moments where he has with levine jack lemon's character and we'll save him for last because i think the aaron pacino literally does like a a superman stance at one point during that speech yeah he puts both his fists like on his hips and he's just like just screaming bile at fucking Spacey. But it's all, like, legitimate because, like, he just lost this big sale because of what Spacey did. But it's just, like, <laughs> to see him take Spacey apart with all his energy. And this is right in, like, this is kind of post-set of a woman, but right in this 90s run of Pacino movies where he just turned his volume up to 12. And he was like, if I just scream louder, <laughs> it's just, like, he just keeps going louder and louder. And it's, it's a great moment to just watch him, like, unleash everything he has on Kevin Spacey. You can tell how serious he is by the volume of his voice. But it works. It's, like, uh, it's one of his bigger performances, but it works. Uh, well, he's definitely my front runner for winner. But uh, should we, should we move? Yeah, he's great. But also, it's, like, he doesn't flat out dominate the movie in a way that, like, overshadows other people. But I love that he can still go up to that, like, 10 level and still just, like, be great in the movie. Yeah, I don't think we see enough of it. We'll, we'll get into that shortly, but do we want to move on to one of the other? Uh, should we go on to Levine, or should we do Should we do the uh, Moss and uh, well, yeah, Aaron? Moss and, yeah, so... Uh, all right, so the, the Alan Argon and Harris characters, they sort of have this dichotomy between them, 
one's like a little too hot-headed, a little too fiery. The other one's a little too meek, a little too, you know, withdrawn. Doesn't, you know, isn't taking action, basically. Who, that's who Alan Arkin is. Um, what, what's great about their dynamic, or at least my favorite part, is really their dialogue. And it's like, this is where only, like, only David Mamet can write dialogue like this, where it's like, their conversation at the beginning seems like two friends commiserating over a bad situation. But what you don't realize is the whole time, and Harris is still a salesman, and his mark is Alan Arkin. And it's like the whole time, you don't realize that Ed Harris is actually trying to sell Alan Arkin on stealing the leads from the joint so they can go to this other company and sell the leads to him. They call him Jerry Graff. You never actually see Jerry Graff. I always, I try to picture, I think Jerry Graff is Kevin Costner. That's who I picture in my head. Oh, I like that. Do you know, do you know who I see? Who do you see? John Lithgow. That's a good, I like that too. I can see Lithgow as like an older sales. Yeah, yeah. That's a good call. But so yeah, the, 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 Ed Harris's scheme basically is to steal the leads from the office, go to Jerry Graff, sell them for an undisclosed amount of money, and then begin doing sales for Jerry Graff. And so what at the beginning of their conversation is really Ed Harris playing up the situation they're in down and being like, how can you do this to a working man, you know? The, the, the pressure they put us under, all this stuff, and it's like, they, you know, it's unreasonable. And it's like, they start saying, you know, when, when you go this far with the pressure, it's like, you have to take action. And Alan Arkin's like, yeah, we'll take action. It's like, you don't know what Ed Harris is talking about yet. It's all, there's a, I forget all the terminology, but I think it's it's like, there's three levels of dialogue when you're doing screenplays, and like, there's opaque dialogue, and then there's leading dialogue, and then there's like, just the explicit dialogue. And it's like, you're talking directly about what, what, what the situation is. And so what Mammoth's great is like writing this like opaque dialogue where it's like two characters are talking about it. It's the same thing in the, or a similar thing in the Al Pacino scene in, in his first sale where it's like, you don't really know what Al Pacino's talking about. And you don't really, it's like, yeah, Ed Harris is talking about it. it's a shitty situation, but it's like, you don't know what his angle is yet. And then you sort of start to hear him talk about, well, you know, what if somebody just ripped off the joint and stole the leads? And it's like, now you're into the leading dialogue. And it's like, okay, he wants to do something criminal here, but you're not sure what yet, and you don't know how Arkin's involved. And then by the end of their conversations, not only, it's like, he's telling Arkin, like, look, you're going to steal it. We're going to go over to Jerry Graff. We're going to start this whole thing up. And he's like, well, why can't you do it? And he's like, well, I'm, I'm obviously going to be the prime witness, so I can't do it, and I'm going to go home and have an alibi and stuff. And then after he explains explicitly what the crime is to Alan Arkin, then he's like, now you're entrapped. Because you know the whole plan, so you're an accessory whether you like it or not. So now you have to do this, and he really tries to strong. It's like it's one of these things where it's like it's this strong arm play of like not only is he selling him on it, but then he kind of tries to trap him and be like, "There's no way out of this now because we listened to my whole plan." I love that that whole scene where he's like, "Well, now you're a part of it. Why? Because I listened." Like it was such clear bullshit on Ed Harris's part, who's not a lawyer, who's not doesn't know anything. Like he's not. If they had come in the next day, all Alan Arkin had to do was say, yeah, he did it. He told me last night we were drunk. I thought he was kidding. Like that, he would have been fine. Although I'm not a lawyer either. So what the fuck do I know? I agree, but it's like, you know, at the time Harris threatens him and says, you know, well, if you say something, then I'm going to say you didn't plan before me. You know, it's like all this kind of shit. Well, it also makes sense that they would only work on that character. Like, I know why it worked. It, it worked on that character. And I thought it was funny too. Like at first you kind of got the feeling, yeah, like they were buddies. Like you didn't get the feeling like, Machine, um, the Levine machine or Machine Levine, uh, Lemon's character and Pacino clearly have like uh, chemistry and a friendship or 
as close to a friendship as these guys have. And I was kind of expecting something similar. And like, you're right. They set it up as this friendship and you realize that it's Harris just marking Arkin, who's at least he's smart enough not to involve himself, but he's too dumb to give him up. So it's, he may still be in trouble. You're not really sure at the end. He's too dumb to sit there and listen to all the bullshit. Like at some point he should have been worried about, Hey, I got to make my numbers. I'm losing my job. And instead it's like, Oh, he just got caught up in Ed Harris's whole scheme. That was totally illegal. It wasn't going to help him. And so it's like some of it, you're right. When you, when you're picking, like there's a reason that Harris picks him to try to do this because it's like, he's the, he's like kind of the weak minded one. Um, I, I just I think that's some, like this is the reason this play won the Pulitzer is because of examples like that with the dialogue where it's like you just don't get that kind of stuff in other movies. A lot of times in other movies, we're like, hey, we're going here to kill this guy, you know, and like that's your dialogue. It's like there's no there's all these like levels of dialogue and stuff. That, really if that was written by like almost any other '90s guy. The scene would have been like 30 seconds, and it would be like, hey, can you believe what they're doing to us? It would be like, no, it's a crime, and it's like, oh, you want to be a Place. Yeah, it would yeah. be one scene, like 30 seconds. It would be like, let's quickly get to the, another, the next plot point. One that's crime like, deserves like, another. Like, well, fuck this company. We'll go to Graph. Like, it would be like more of like a heist as instead of exactly. just like sale. This movie is like, it's like, don't move quickly to, from plot point to plot point. It's like, stay on that plot point and just expand it as far as you can. And like, understand what the, what these guys are going through. I really like... Why they would commit a crime, you know? And it's awesome. Like, now that you just said that, like, and uh, it's occurring to me, they let each scene breathe. Like, it's like, there's great, and it's because they've got great actors and great dialogue and great direction and all that stuff. But it's like, each scene, like, starts off kind of small. And by the end, it's like, they're all great. Like, really, all, every dialogue is pretty awesome. And then, like, almost every one of, like, the, almost a lot of the scenes are, like, two guys interacting. Two, two of these salesmen, or maybe, like, Lemon and Spacey or something. But it's like, most of it is two actors just kind of facing off. And it's like, it's all this stuff of, like, you know, Ed Harris is, tra- it's like, he's really trying to convince Alan Arkin in those scenes that it's like the best, the best option for you here is to, to like go in there and steal this stuff. And it's like, <laughs> it's kind of believable. It's like, as the viewer, you kind of like, should Alan Arkin do that? Like, should they do this? You know, you're not totally sure as the viewer at that point. I think of like, maybe they have been pushed into a corner that the company deserves to be ripped off this way. I mean, if I was those characters, if I had been like hitting my number, I would never steal, but like I, you could yeah. see, you could you could play the Robin Hood angle for the Arkin character and Moss character, uh, excuse me, and Ed, Ed Harris character if you wanted. Uh, I don't think it really comes through in this film. I'm not feeling too bad for either of them, but you, you could they definitely could have played into that. Um, I'm glad they didn't because it's I think it would have been a different film. Then you want to talk about uh, Shelley the Machine? Shelley the Machine Levine. Yes, one, I do. One, one of the last great uh, Jack Lemmon. I mean, this guy was a big time actor in the 50s and 60s. He's in the apartment, for God's sakes. Probably more well known to people today just being a grumpy old man. Now, is there is there some meta-ness going on there that you have Lemon in the 90s casting this role? Like, is he still peaking or is this towards, is it like, was he starting to get fewer roles? Like, could this, was he playing like also Jack Lemon in a way? It was at the point where he was shifting from like real acting into that whole like, grumpy old men thing with Matthau again, yeah. where it was like they were kind of making commercial movies but they were kind of just pocketing money and it wasn't like they were doing serious acting or anything so I think I mean I could look at his uh, page right now but it's like I feel like Lemon was a much more important actor in like the 50s 60s range and like I'm not totally sure what happened to him in the 70s 80s 
Do you? Um, what do okay. you, you think of his character? Uh, I, I, I like him. Underrated performance for an older actor, and um, the, I think his character gives the is the biggest reference to Death of a Salesman, which is probably the other most well known salesman story or play. They apparently the joke is they call this movie the Death of a Fucking Salesman because of how because uh, <laughs> of how vul- of vulgar it was. Yeah, that's a very that's a good point. The, like Death of a Salesman is more about you know the life of a salesman and how sad it can be because they're not really appreciated at the end of their lives and it's a good, it's a very good well written play very sad story. It's also a, a lot more about domestic life and families and stuff. But uh, yeah, Death of a Fucking Salesman is a good call because it's like you kind of eliminate all that family stuff and drama and we'll just start cursing at each other. But I think his character is kind of a, more of a reference. I think Willie Lomax is the name. Yes. Of character death of salesman so i think he's kind of that like it's not too on the nose because he's a little bit different than that actual person but it's like he clearly represents the aging salesman that probably should have retired five years ago but has kids and he's still going and like maybe his wife has health problems or something and so he's very he has all these concerns and it's like he, he just hasn't been able to give up his job and now he's kind of in a situation where it's like he's got to pull something out of his ass or he's on you know in the brakes next some of my favorite scenes are his and it's where he, it's like the two scenes with Spacey actually. And I know I just ripped Spacey, but I really don't think he gives anything to these scenes, but it's lemon. And you see him go from trying to sweet talk him, then bribe him, then scare him. Like, like then just yell at him. And it's like, you see him pivot from all these different things. And you could tell they're just different masks he's putting on to try to get what right. he wants. And it kind of goes into the whole sales thing. Like you realize, and you touched on this earlier in every scene, someone's trying to sell someone on something else. Like, even the last one when it's, like, Pacino, like, trying to be, like, hey, basically being, like, we should work together, like, talking to Lemon's character. In every scene, someone's trying to get something out of someone. And it's not necessarily cynical. If you – it's not – world's not necessarily that transactional, and I don't think it's meant to be that cynical. But at the same time in this film, for these very cynical guys, like, looking at the film in that way, ah, it makes sense. And you realize that, like, for someone like Pacino – He's doing it one way and he's got two modes. He's either smooth or he gets angry. And it's like, yeah. and it's because when he's smooth, he gets what he wants. He, he can usually get what he wants when he's smooth. And when he's not, he just pivots to angry to basically bully people. And you see Lemon's character try both of those and neither of them are work. Like he, like none of the hats really work for him with Spacey's character. I, I like, I like your take there where it's like Lemon, I think Lemon more than any other character has, has like the highest highs and the lowest lows. And it's like, and it, I like what you were saying. He puts like his, the amount of tactics he tries on Spacey to try to get him. You know, it's like I'm gonna bribe you, they'll blackmail you, I'll do this, I'll do that. You know, maybe I'll call him. You know, back in the day, I could have had your job. It's like he has all the, all these different tactics, and it's like he is kind of this like he's an old man, but he, he has a vicious side to him, like a real savage side, and it's like crazy to see that like out of the old man character at times. Some of the rips he throws at Spacey are just like some of the most savage things and it ends up biting him in the ass. Uh, but here's a question I have was, do you think his daughter was really in the hospital or do you think that was another lot? Cause I'm starting to question everything we don't actually see like for these guys. That's, that's true. I, I felt like there was a, at one point he was like in a phone booth and he, it was like, he was calling the hospital. Yes. And yes. He was like, I'll have the money and buy tomorrow. Yes. And it was like, that to me was like, okay, he really, like, it sounded like the daughter had medical. Like, I thought that was the confirmation of that. But you're right, okay. we don't see it on camera. 
But it's like if he was doing that on the phone in the office for Spacey, that would be a bit of a different thing, I think. All right, I kind of jumped the gun with my questions. I have a couple of questions for you. Is there anything else you want to say about um, Levine or any of these other characters before we uh, I, I, I come at you with some questions? No, I think we hit all the characters. All right, well, so that was the first question because that was something that didn't really occur to me until we actually started talking about it was that, like, maybe she wasn't real. Um, but now, I think you're right. I, I, I think that would give it a much different bend if she wasn't real at all. Yeah, he's desperate in a way that seems beyond his needs. Yes, that's true. I, I'd say it's, okay, so then the other, so the next big one is, what was Levine trying to tell Roma at the end? At the end of the film, Levine, Levine is Jack Lemon, Roma's Pacino, oh. and he's trying to tell Roma something, but Roma's trying to close like a deal on the phone. Yeah. Is trying to yeah. trying to get Lemon to agree to work with him. It's like, oh, we'll meet at the Chinese restaurant later. Lemon's walking into the police interview knowing he's about to be arrested, and he's trying to get his attention, and then eventually he just gives up and goes in. And so, sorry, that was setting the scene. Seth, what do you think he was trying to say there? It's not, yeah, it's funny. I was actually thinking about that when I rewatched it. It's not 100% clear. I think that's open to interpretation. It, it, for, uh, at first, I was like, maybe he's just going to say something about sales, you know? Like, don't, you know, always, uh, you know, always be closing, you know, one of those kind of taglines or something. <laughs> but also, maybe he was, was going to be like, hey, like I'm the one that took the lead, so just like don't worry about the cops. Maybe he was going to say something like that. Um, I'm not sure. I, I, it's hard to. I don't know what his last piece of advice was going to be to Roma. I um, I'm kind of on a similar path to you. I won't be able to put it articulate. I won't be able to articulate in a way that Mehmet would have. But uh, I think it was for me. I think it might have been something like maybe a thank you because you could tell the kind words that Pacino was telling him right before he's about to be arrested. I thought it might be like a like a thank you or, or some type of kind word, or maybe it was advice. Maybe it was like, don't be like me. It's the one sort of like human transaction in the movie where you can tell Lemon sort of passed on whatever sort of fucked up wisdom he got through the business and his years. Like he was able to pass it on to Roma. And it's like, I think he's grateful that it's like, he can, yeah, it's like he can tell he's about, you know, his life's about to go upside down. He seems to get arrested. But it's like he's weirdly grateful that Roma's sort of like, you know, been able to understand him or something or like understand the better parts of him maybe. So here's my other question. The deal that uh, Arkin, uh, Arkin's character, um, I think Laranov or Aronov was presented with was that if they steal them, they'll have a job at Graf. Right. So my question is, did... Uh, Jack Lemon or Levine's did the Levine I'm sorry I keep doing both names I'm sorry did the Levine character get that same deal because it seemed like he didn't it seems like he might have gotten a rough deal he got the same 2500 also my favorite part in the whole yeah I don't think he got the job okay that makes sense so it sounds like Harris was able to get him a cheaper too But maybe Harris was just kind of pitching on that. But it's it's clear that Harris was getting a big sum of money for the leads, and then that that was why he was going to cut him in on twenty five hundred, and that was the real like sort of thing going on there. All right, and now he, that perfectly leads into my second question. At the end, Harris is the brains behind this whole scheme. He ends up apparently getting a rough talking to from the from the detectives. Comes out, gets in a shouting match, like is being a dickhead to Levine. Draws Roma's ire, and they get in this. <laughs> <laughs> they get in this pissing match where Roma basically just like sends him packing. And, I, and now that we're talking about it, I'm wondering, did Harris, I kind of get the sense Harris, that was contrived on Harris's part. He wanted to act like 
that was that scene allowed it for him to leave the office without it being weird. Like, I guess my question is, do you think he was really that upset? Do you think he was just was pretending to get out, or do you think it was a combo of the two? I think he was. I think it's kind of like he's. It was an airing of grievances of all the years he had worked with those guys a little bit. But I also think it was like he was playing it up because he was going to quit because he was going to go work for Jerry Brassler. Like that was his plan, kind of thing. And so, whatever happened with the cops, I don't think you know. He probably just said, "I had no idea," over and over again. Or like, what I don't get quite get the whole cop scene was like, why aren't any of these guys asking for a lawyer? Like, who the fuck would talk to cops for asking for, asking for a lawyer? You know. That was my first thing. My other thing was I would have loved to see some of those conversations, like with Mamet writing. Like I think maybe that's a different movie. Maybe that's a yeah, three-hour movie. See some of those. No, those are all off screen. The, in the play, it's the same kind of thing where you see in the office and you don't know what's happening behind closed doors. Now that we're just talking about like fasts, faces and masks and tactics, it would be interesting to see. You could probably see it would be cool to do a show with each of them with a different side when they go in. Like maybe some are combative. That would, um, that actually, that would like if you're doing the movies, you could like you know maybe you throw that out at the end of the movie or something. I don't think you use that cop actor. I think you need a, a bigger actor to play the cop. No offense to that guy. I think yeah, his name probably. is like Jude Siakella. Um, maybe you get De Niro to play that cop and have him just rip everyone <laughs> apart. Um, all right, other questions. Um, so I know it was filmed in New York, but I was curious. I kind of got a Chicago vibe at one point. Like, do we know? Is this supposed to be anywhere USA or is this supposed to be New York? Mamet's from Mamet's from Chicago and a lot of like his style is really the Chicago style of acting and theater. And so well, anytime you have uh, big screaming uh, arguments like that, that's all Chicago theater kind of stuff. And it's like, um, I, you know, Gary Sinise and um, John Malkovich both came out of that, that same theater school. Oh my God. Okay. I was wondering what you're talking about. And now that you mentioned those actors, I get it. Like it's, there's a in a good way they use volume yes. in a very like effective way. Yes, yeah, and the, the play uh, True West, um, uh, both of them are in it. The, the, the best example of the Chicago theater style is that play True West, where both of them are in it, and um, it's like there's just a, it's two brothers. There's a lot of shouting arguments, but I I appreciate the style because I love <laughs> I like watching actors that sort of like turn up the volume and really go after each other and stuff. But I also understand that like. After a while, or if you see it too much, it can become, why is everyone screaming at each other? Uh, like, I understand that critique of this movie, which some people have, where it's like, do I need to listen to 500 fucks and these guys screaming, wailing at each other? And like, it's a, There's a lot of just masculinity going on. It's like seasoning with salt. The right amount's great. Too much is, is it can destroy something. I, I think this movie does a great job of, of balancing it. I think it really works. Um, but before we go into rankings, I have one last question for you. What are the work hours of these humans? It's like the middle of the night and they're starting their day. Like, but it seemed like they've been working all day. I, I'm very, they're going out on calls in the middle of the night. Like I was, I couldn't figure out their work. They're, they had a meeting like at 830 the first night. It was uh, the work hours were just blowing my mind. Um, all right. I had one question for you, actually. Yeah. I, yeah, please. No, I noticed. I, I, I want to say I've noticed this before, actually. But so Roma is the only one you see really make a sale in the moment. But if you when he un, 
folds his lead, uh, the property that he, he finally ends up, like at the very end of his monologue, he's like, I'm going to show you a piece of property, I'm going to show you something. You may think one way, you may think another, but he unfolds this pamphlet, and on the pamphlet, it says Glengarry Real Estate. And that made me wonder, did Roma have a Glengarry lead before the Glengarry leads were released, and that was the real reason he made the sale? Because they all keep talking about these dog shit leads and that the Glengarry leads are the good ones and they'll get them after this whole sales period or whatever. But then what the the thing that Roma unfolds says Glengarry. You know, I didn't pick up on that. Uh, and to be honest, I didn't fully get – I like there's Glengarry, Glen Ross. They keep saying the same two names like Mitch and Murphy or something like that. Yeah, yeah. But now that you're saying it, what I'm thinking of is – I wouldn't surprise me if Roma had a situation with Kevin Spacey where he was getting the best yeah. leads. Like, and that's not a critique on Roma's character, but he's he's pretty practical guy, and clearly, uh, clearly, thought, clearly, Spacey's character is open to that. So maybe yeah. my my take is that I didn't pick up on that. My take is maybe he got a bribe and got one of the leads early before they were stolen. It's, it seems like something like that. And then like, but I think the other little thing about it is like, if that is a Glengarry lead, it kind of, it kind of makes me, it kind of evaporates the whole Roma mystique. And it's like, maybe he just had a better lead and a better piece of property. That's all the sales really about. You know? Well, now that we're talking about it too, like, and I was joking, they always talk about the leads, but like they're, I work in sales, not in this industry. Um, but there are quality of can like clients and candidates. Like, so like that's a, it is something that's real and it's, they're selling real estate. So if you're getting leads, I don't know how it works exactly, especially in the nineties, but if you're getting like, if you sell a $90,000 property and people can't afford more than 30,000, like that's a bad lead. And it's like, yeah, yeah, exactly. My understanding is like, yeah, like they, they have properties that the company's trying to sell. And then they have a list of people that the company deems as interested buyers, which are usually people that like to fill out a form and a, newspaper or something and like they're interested in properties you know in their area and so they end up getting these phone calls but a lot of these people like they say like didn't even know what they filled out and now they're playing by salesmen for the rest of their lives oh like, happens the best of us um no, i'm not sure dude as someone, in the, as someone in the industry i did kind of like i was wondering if it was going to come across as like too over the top or like you're, this is not what sales like i'm sure this isn't what sales is like especially today but there has there must be some element of like the pressure you know i don't know no, I mean, there are definitely some things. I think there's some, uh, I'm in a different industry. I'm in the, I sell a different product. Uh, but the different, the biggest difference is just the way they speak to each other. I mean, I've been in the office, I've been working for 10 years. So clearly I wasn't back around back then. But Alec Baldwin's speech alone, like if he said that now in any office, he would be fired. And if he was rich, he wouldn't be much longer. Like he so says, you've never, never got to get coffee and so I'll just scream. If anyone ever said that to me, I'd throw, I would fill the coffee up and throw it in their face. If any, or I would just walk out right there. Uh, I'm not the best salesman, but I do have my dignity. Uh, but with that being said, I've had bad bosses. I've had tough bosses. I've had rough things said to me before. And sometimes, and yeah, I mean, in any industry, you're going to run into a lot of egos in sales. There are different types of salespeople. You have different types of managers. So like for certain things, I'd be like, oh, I knew this guy. I knew that guy. Like, this is the one thing, though, in my most of pretty much all my companies, people take off the sales mask when you're talking to the other salespeople. Like there's not this much like manipulation. Yeah. And the closest thing that I saw was more so the um, the machine and the Roma character. Like and even that, like that 
I I wish I had that type of awesome like mentor mentee relationship with someone. I haven't had that, but like I, I, the takeaway I had was all the pressure, all the bullshit. Working with someone who is less qualified than you and younger than you, that's totally accurate. I mean, that's normal. I think that's normal for most industries um, to feel that way. But as a salesperson, they definitely hit on hit on some good things. I don't have that type of pressure, and no one, especially I work in New York. So if anyone were to ever drop the the second f bomb they'd be out faster than, I mean, I don't know, like they would literally just be out of there in a second and you can get in trouble. You're, you apparently, you can't trouble just for threatening someone's job. Like the way they speak to each other in this film is something that uh, just doesn't fly anymore, but the, the yeah. ongoing pressure and especially the fact that it's like, what have you done for me lately? That's the most accurate impression thing. It's like in sales, <clears throat> Oh, you were the best performer eight months out of 12, three years ago. That's not going to win you anything today. And I would say that's the most pressured thing that I took away. Uh, all that's the individual true. relationships were a little dramatic from my experience. <laughs> that makes sense. Uh, do we want to go into, do you want to pick a winner and then go to final rankings? Oh, man. We, might, we could just like rank, rank the actors. In yeah, let, let's just, I think that's a better way. Let's rank the actors and then uh, you, you, want me, you want me to go first? Yeah, you can. I'm going to give it – Pacino wins it for me. Lemon comes in second. Baldwin third. Baldwin I love and I wanted to give him the win, but I just think that what Lemon and Pacino are doing, they're, they're doing a lot more. They're doing a lot longer, and I, I think it just plays better over – Yeah. Over, Baldwin's one scene, but it's probably the best scene of any single actor. So I hear what you're saying. Yeah. And then I give it to Harris, and and then I give I it to like – and then I give it to Arkin, and that's not a knock on Arkin. Arkin's great, and I think Arkin's doing exactly what he's supposed to do. But that, to me, is with those five is where the great performances end. Then you have Jonathan Price's Link, which I don't love, uh, and then you have Kevin Spacey, who I, I'm going to flip Spacey and Arkin. I'm, excuse me, I'm going to flip Spacey and Price. Space, Spacey, I, I talked about him enough. I won't go into it. I just think he's. I think he's probably feeling what he's supposed to do but he's the least charismatic and he's being blown off the screen almost every time. Jonathan yeah. and price. I know price is trying to play a beta, but he's doing it too well. Like, like you might as well, you could put a mop with a wig where he is and it would give me just the same presence. So like that's that, how I rank. Like, I always feel like that, that price character should be Tim Robbins or something. I think that would have been fun. You're right. It, they, they, it didn't need to be Price. Also, give him the British accent. I don't want this weird American accent from Price. It's not. It's yeah. no good. It's no good. That's a, that's a, that's a weird one. Um, so, boy, I actually think I'm gonna go Lemon one. I think Lemon. My man. I, I I was thinking about doing that. I'm glad you gave him one. I just think those points where like he thinks he's made the, the big sale. And he, he, he's so happy about it. And it's like, he just lights up the room when he comes in, you know? And then it, there's that part where as soon after uh, Spacey kind of turns the tables on him and he just falls back down in this pit of despair. And it's just like to see him hit those those extreme emotions so quickly, it's really cool. And it's like, it's a cool kind of goodbye movie for him. Not that he died recently, like he went on for like 10 years or something, but... To me, it's a cool, like, this is sort of the last, like, serious Jack Lemmon part. It was, like, his last home game. Like, the Jeter home game. Yeah. Like, he ended he ended the, he ended it on, like, the right the right way. Yeah. It's like getting your 3,000th hit or something, you know? You're like, oh, you got one more. You know? It's like, oh, that's so cool. 
so I, I'm going to go Lemon. I agree. Pacino, I think, is the is the second most interesting performance to watch. Both like, and he has a very different performance from the first act to the second act, which is like, you know, that Harris character is basically the same same person both halves, I guess. Um, that being said, I think I'm going to take Ed Harris three. I think he kind of hits the highest volume. <laughs> Which is saying a lot because there's a lot of guys. That well, he's the villain. He's the real villain of of the film. Kind of. I mean, in some ways, he's the he's the most uh, entrepreneurial and capitalistic. I feel uh, yeah, they're not mutually exclusive. That's <laughs> <laughs> true. There will be blood. Um, I, I like Harris. I you know he, I like him. Like I was talking a lot about that scene with Kid Arkin and how he convinces our our sort of like traps Arkin in this crime. And then I like him, I mean, he he gives a fiery exit. (laughs) I guess, I mean, you're right. He's not as dynamic as the others, but I I guess I just sort of, I sort of like Harris when he's just like on fire. I mean, he's given us more than Baldwin gives us in terms of like scope and range. So I I think it's totally fair. You're right. The the Baldwin scene's more fun. All right, I'm going to go Baldwin 3. Woo! The the, the scene's such a knockout. It's the highlight of the movie. It's the crown jewel. It's the scene you quote when you talk about it to other people. It's just like, it's such a great scene, such a cool scene. And honestly, like, you could show that scene to somebody and they don't really have to watch the rest of the movie. Like, it's a great movie and you should watch the whole movie. But, like, if you just wanted to encapsulate everything we've talked about in one scene, like, just watch the Alec Baldwin scene. <laughs> <laughs> I, it's like, yeah, it's hard to say that about other movies out there. It's just like, it's an amazing scene. Um, it's a great scene. Uh, so I think the fact that uh, and the fact that Baldwin is the one giving, you know, propping that scene up, I'm going to give him the credit. And, and like, think about what we're saying. I'm listing him third. And now I'm listing Ed Harris fourth. And when Ed Harris is your fourth best actor in a movie like this, like you're really doing something. And then, like you, I'm going to have Alan Arkin fifth. I think of the main, the integral cast. It's like he's the way it's written. He, he plays it correctly, but it. It's hard for that role to pop when you have all these other guys going so hard, and they're all big actors too. They needed to either give him a little more comedy or a little more menace or just some balls. Like there's just something missing from that character for the the arcing character to really pop or stand out. But with that being said, I think we both agree. I think we're ranking the same. He's doing the best he can with what he has. Yeah, and I'll go Spacey overpriced. I know. For, uh, you know, we critique Spacey a lot here. For I'll say this about him. He's, a, he's kind of developing, like, he's not quite the guy from American Beauty yet, but you can see he's kind of developing that stuff. Um, I also think it's cool to, like, I think Lemon's blowing him off the screen, I think you're right, but I think it's cool to see him trying to act with Lemon, where it's like, I think he is the youngest guy in the cast, and to, to pair him with the oldest guy in the cast was an interesting move. And it's like, it's also, it creates that dichotomy between the salesman and the company, where it's like, he's this young company man who's related to somebody and he's dealing with these older salesmen who've been doing this for 20 plus years and like don't really respect them. The one thing I will give his character, now that we're talking about it, I realize there's two speeches that happen in quick succession. It's uh, Lemon coming in and bragging about his his sale. big big sale. <clears throat> and then he kind of tells out, rips apart Kevin Spacey. And then like shortly thereafter, Spacey basically put rips him a new one and is like, no, your sale... Those people are crazy. That check's gonna bounce, and you. And then now that we're talking about it, I realized Spacey that whole time was get, letting Lemon gloat. He was giving him his moment to shine in the sun, and he didn't. Whether and I don't know if it was from like a positive place where he's like, 
I'll give this guy his victory for now, like, and we won't burst the bubble until I have to. Right. Or you could also look at it, it was a really cruel thing, and he's like, yeah, I'm going to let this, I'm going to pop this guy, let this guy blow up his balloon, I'm going to pop it at the worst possible moment. Uh, but I, I think it's more meant to be more positive, because he didn't seem, although at the end he does admit he's going to just turn him in just because he doesn't like him, but he also has this scene where he's like, uh, "It's I have a family too, and so not to go too off track here, my dad worked on Wall Street and finance. Oh, anyone's parents, you don't have to work on Wall Street, but when you're responsible or managing other people, like one of the things he used to say, especially in Wall Street in the 80s and 90s, like there's a lot, he used to tell his people, like they're traders, like basically if you fuck around with me, if you like do something illegal or do something that could fuck with my life, like I'm going to, I'm going to fucking turn you in and it's not going to be a question. And apparently he used to like show a picture of us. He's like, these are my kids. I like them more than you. Don't ask me to choose between you and my kids or my wife because I'm going to choose them every time. And that was his whole spiel. Uh, but Spacey's best moment is when really at the end when he's kind of – and I think that's where he needed a pop. And it's a good moment, but it's not great. But when he lays into Lemon at the end, I think he needed yeah. a little more venom and to basically really call him out and be like, hey. That's what, yeah, it's the first time he's really like on top of somebody and he has the advantage on somebody else. And it's like he catches Lemon in this lie where he knew the check didn't get cashed because Lemon had stolen it. <laughs> <laughs> the only night I'd never cash a check. How would you fucking know that? It's like clearly and it's like, and then when, when that hits you as the viewer too, it all kind of falls into place. It's like, yeah, Lennon was the most desperate, and he would have fallen for Ed Harris's plan, and that like everything kind of starts to make sense from there on. My takeaway was that I bet Harris could get him for less. I bet that twenty five hundred, although he didn't, he had it on him. But I bet that was what he needed to get to the hospital. But now that we yeah. say that, like, why didn't he just give that immediately? Like, uh, we, we, we we don't need we don't need to go down that rabbit hole. That was a rabbit hole. Um, all right. Final score? Final score is... Um, writing is off the charts. <laughs> I mean, this play won a fucking Pulitzer. Um, the, the acting is also... The depth of the cast and the, the level that they're all hitting is really cool. Um, I, get the, I get the critique that it's just a bunch of white guys yelling at each other. <laughs> Sometimes that's enjoyable for some of us, though. Uh, I mean, it, they say art should imitate life, and sometimes they're in real life, there's just a group of white men yelling at each other. Like, that does happen. Like, you know, 20 years earlier, 12 Angry Men was a Sidney Lumet movie that won Best Picture, I think. And that's just 12 white guys that were arguing. But it's a really captivating, interesting movie that talks about, you know, our justice system and stuff. And it's like, it's not the end of the yet. And I think it's just more of a reflection of the time period. So I'm not going to dock it for, for a lack of uh, representation in the cast. But I will say, I think the acting is in the nine level. I think the writing is in the nine level. I might talk a little for the directing. I don't think it's like, I don't really think they, um, in terms of like uh, adapting a play to a movie, I don't think they did anything too dynamic in that respect. And so that's probably where I deduct the most points. So I'll probably sit at like an 8.8, 8.9. I'm in a similar zone to you. Um, I think we're going to hit on all the same beats here. The writing and acting is like top chart. Like it's, it's all, it's all great. I know I was even knocking Kevin Spacey, but even talking about that. Yeah. For him to be your sixth best actor and he's just doing, and he's doing a good job, not like a, not an okay job. He's still doing a good job. Like that's great for me. I do understand where I totally hear you to bring it back to sports. Like, 
I'm a Yankees fan. Do I think Babe Ruth should be held accountable to, because um, there were the Negro Leagues at the time and African-Americans couldn't play in the regular league? No, I don't think he should have any. I don't think that I don't think that diminishes Babe Ruth's greatness. So at the same time, uh, but with that being said, like this movie's lack of representation, I understand the play is older. This movie was made in 92. Like the, the, the and it's not so much the racial lack of racial diversity, which I'm not saying is not a problem, but again, I have grew up. There are places where there, especially historically, there are a lot of rooms with only white men in them. A lot of companies with only yeah. white men. It's not great. But at the same time, I think we need to be very careful between being, we need to draw the line. We need to thread that needle between being realistic and also practical and idealistic. And I think there's a happy medium but my bigger problem is the lack of female representation and that I am going to dock it for. And the reason is, is because you hear about these female characters. You keep hearing about these wives who put their husbands on the phone. You keep, you hear about the daughter, Jack Lemmon's daughter. They talk about their wives. Like some of them reference mistress, mistresses. It's my whole problem. You hear Kevin Spacey and his daughters and Claire, he has a wife. To me, it's a film. And I just talked about all these great performances and how much I love short movies, but this movie's an hour and 40 minutes. You can trim off a couple lines of fat, or you can add in one female character for 10 minutes or two for 10. I don't know how you do it, but I think it's something that was missing. And we talked about death of a salesman that focuses on a female, like the wife plays into that. Like I just to, just to follow, I think that's a real fair criticism. And I think that's actually a criticism you can apply throughout most of Mamet's career. Um, you know, I think of his movies from the 80s. There's not a lot of female representation. And then you think about those movies like Wag the Dog, Ronin, very male-driven uh, movies. Although Ronin does have Natasha McCallone in a great role. It's, like, it's a very underrated character. Yes. You know, there's, a, there's a lot more men. That, the same with The Edge. There's a female character in The Edge, but she's kind of an underdeveloped, just pretty woman. And the, most of the action is between three men. So I think that's a fair thing to say about male movies. Now, the one. There, there is one thing I want to say here, and we've kind of talked talked about this a lot. I'm sorry, I'm getting my soapbox for a minute. I don't think that makes Mamet or other like white male writers misogynistic or racist. Like we talk about representation and like the power of like whether it's Black Panther being on screen for African Americans or Captain Marvel being on screen. Uh, for comic book movies, and I'm sorry I always use comic book references, but it's what comes easiest to me. But at the same time, like white people are no different, and white guys, white boys want to see white heroes. Not, it's not necessarily. And I know when you say like say it like that, it sounds very negative. Um, but what I'm saying is like I love comic books. Spider Man, Wolverine, like Spider Man, the Hulk, and Captain America are three of my favorite. And they're all white guys. I don't love them because they're white, but they happen to be. It doesn't mean I don't don't love Storm or Black Panther or Falcon or any of these other characters. But in Mamet's defense, and also for anyone who loves these movies that we critique or that are mostly white guys, like, I'm not judging you. There are, just like there are rooms of only black people, there are rooms of only Latino people, there are rooms of only white people. My take is, though, with Glengarry Glen Ross, I'm, I'm not going to give it as big a leash because it happened in 92, where, like, I mean... The, we should That's be a little more woke. However, with that being said, I don't begrudge other movies for that. My takeaway is for movies that are being made today, my point more is now 
if you're going to make a movie like Irishman, that's a three hour movie with only white guys in it. Like that to me is more egregious than this film. And it's not, and I, I'm not trying to come from it, like from a libtard angle, like let's give everyone a voice, but it's more so like, let's be realistic. And if you're talking about these female characters, let's bring them into the picture. And also now just be more modern. The country is not as uh, homogenous as it used to be. And let's, we don't, whether you're celebrating that or critiquing that, I'm not doing either, but like, let's be honest and reflect that in what we're showing. I think when it's, it's, it's like, it can be both, like, you can let David Mamet keep his Pulitzer, but you can also critique him for not having a lot of, like, developed female characters. There, yes. The, true. You're, you're 100% right. There is no perfect work, and I don't care if you win an award or not. I have yet to see the perfect picture, show, movie, read the perfect book. Uh, when it comes, I'll be sure to let you know. There are ones that are great. So I, I, th- I think you just said it perfectly. You don't need to rewrite history, but at the same time, you can also be like, use it as a stepping point to something bigger and better. And it's like, if, and, you know, it wouldn't surprise me if this got remade, honestly. And if it was remade in 2020, you know, I could see the Spacey character being female. I could see, you know, turning one of the other salesmen into a black character. I, I think that if you made this movie today, it would be a much different cast. Go, oh, I bet you make Spacey, you make Spacey the female and have her be like Glenn Gary's daughter or something. And then make, maybe you make, I'm trying to think who you, maybe you make the Roma character some a minority. I'm not, the, just, or, or you could do any of them, but I think Roma might be interesting. Um, uh, how about, uh, I want Morgan Freeman as the Jack Lemmon character. Oh my God, I would love that. I love me a little Morgan Freeman. I know he's a bit of a, of a I know he got in some trouble, but he just, he just seems like a little bit creepy. I don't think he's a real danger. Oh, I'd see that. I'd see that. I would watch that. Um, all right. I'm sorry that we went on that whole tirade. I didn't even give him my score. So I was thinking about it. I recently listened to our parasite one. I gave that an eight, eight, seven. I, I want to stick in the same range for here. I think I'm going to give this an eight. I'm going to give this an eight. I'm going to give this an eight, seven. Um, I'm, I, I, I was in the eight, five to nine range. And the reason I'm giving eight, seven, we just, I just went on a huge, huge rant about the lack of uh, inclusion. The other thing too, is I just think a couple of the characters when you're only, when you're only, when the movie's really only about the acting and the writing to hit that nine range, you really need everyone to be in the nine range. And the acting range, we said, yeah, it's in the 90s, but it's because the top four or five are hitting like right. a thousand and the bottom two, in my opinion, are batting like 40. And so for that, I'm just going to dock it a little bit more. But I love I love that it's short for someone who's always like pretty kind of critical of run times. It's a it's a really efficient, like 135 till the credits. And it was it's one of those films where it keeps you. It kind of peaks early with the Baldwin thing, but it keeps you. It's got great dialogue, and by the end, it we've we've been talking about it for almost as long as the movie was. It asks a lot of cool questions, and I think it generates some yeah. cool conversations. So I'm giving it an eight seven. Nice eight seven eight point nine for me. Yeah, I totally agree. It's just it's one of those. Once you're engaged with it, it, it leads you to all these different thoughts about just sales and business and your life, and 
it's a really, it's a great piece of work. Yeah, anyone interested also in like screenplay writing or anything like that, it's like this is the type of movie to study, or like dialogue writing even, just like study this kind of stuff. Well, we kind of touched on this before, and not just to go off on a whole other thing, but just talking about, it's really like the company. We talked about the company and whether or not they wanted it to happen so they could reap the insurance. We right. talk, yeah, yeah. It's really like I kind of think a treatise or commentary on capitalism, and it's the idea of capitalism is the form we have chosen, and it's better than what we thought came before, which was the pillaging and raiding of medieval Europe and the like imperial <laughs> conquest. Uh, and But really, it's still in capitalism – you're trying to get people's money away from them and you're trying to do it the nicest way possible. But in this, the whole film is about people trying to separate either their customers or each other from their money. Um, And sometimes it's giving them money to get more for themselves, but it's all about manipulation and it's a little cynical, but that's what happens in the capitalist society because if you can, it's like, it gives the opportunity to make money. People make money. They want more money. And then it's like, well, if you need more money, how do you get it from other people? And then you hear you see these salespeople trying all these different tactics and really lying to people to get their money. And and I don't think it's necessarily good or bad, but I think you kind of need to my you need to come at it from an objective point of view and understand that that is what drives this whole country and economy. Not to get too big on it, but it's just that like it's people trying to get money from other people for products and services they don't always need. And that's what drives everything. And that's kind of my take. Uh, that, that was your Bernie Sanders endorsement. <laughs> no, I didn't. Even, and I'm a capitalist. I'm not, <laughs> I have nothing against it. I have nothing against Bernie either, but no, I, I, I that came off too. That probably came off too negative. We're going to probably need to cut this out. <laughs> um, all right. We're gonna we're gonna cut that out. Seth, is there anything else you want to talk about? Um, I don't. Know, I think we're good. I yeah. And also, you know, I'd recommend that Mammoth sort of has this '80s period where he wrote a bunch of movies, and he has a '90s period. And then I'm a really big fan of Red Bill. Uh, I think that was '03 or '05 or something. But yeah, if anyone, because I, uh, you know, this is a movie a lot of people watch and be like, oh, what the fuck else is like this? And it's like. There's not a lot. Like, Mammoth's a very unique writer, and so it's like the only other things like this are other Mammoth movies. I was saying, is it like, tw- would it be 12 Angry Men? Like, I, there's, I'm, they're ve- or like maybe closer. There's very well, few dialogue driven movies. Genre, yeah, but it's like, uh, in terms of like the dialogue in it, Stuff and Wag the Dog and uh, Red Belts are, are more similar to sort of like the levels of dialogue in this movie. I was just, I, I wasn't saying other Mammoth films. I was trying to just say other non Mammoth films that could kind of hit, like, the, maybe scratch that same itch. Yeah, it's one I would say. I don't know. I'm trying to think. I, I didn't mean to put you on the spot. That, that's why I said, like, I was thinking of, like, dialogue-driven films. Like, to me, Closer always comes to mind, which we should oh, actually yeah, do that. Yeah, I, Boiler Room also sort of, like, steals from this movie. Oh, yeah, definitely. Yeah. That, that's a, that would be a great watch. Boiler Room is... It's a it's a light version of this film. I like Boiler Room, but it doesn't hit the same heights. I would say, although it does have a female and a minority, so you got to give it that. That's a wrap, you know. <laughs> um, all right, I think that does it for for Glengarry Glen Ross. Seth, want to say goodbye to the people? Goodbye, people. Bye.